borders. Always an experience. Hello, and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world, an aspect of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, Ian Oliver, also known as the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. if anyone's still going to be subscribed to my podcast after so long but if you are i'm really glad that you've got the patience either that or you just forgot i existed and didn't think to unsubscribe from me either way hello well i'm writing this on christmas eve and with any luck i might drop the episode before new year's day that's new year's day 2021 obviously let's not be too hasty with my promises here well if it's still relevant when you're listening to this happy new year and i hope the 2020s bring you everything you deserve which, in some people's case, is a good dose of the clap. In not unrelated news, turns out I'm the same age as Katie Hopkins. Or at least we would have been in the same year at school. I'm not sure she lives in the same age as me. Generation X, eh? Who'd have thunk it? Anyway, let's not get political and cynical. At least, not yet. That'll come later. As you may know, if you were following my Instagram stories, I've recently been travelling around Europe for a couple of months, and it's one reason why it's taken me this long to do a new podcast partly because I've been travelling and partly because at some point my voice recorder actually broke. So I was really worried and had to buy a new one. But I didn't. It was just a problem with the battery casing and it was fixed with a bit of cardboard. So it's fine. Anyway, back to my trip. See, earlier in the year, I was reminded that Interrail existed. It was something that I did 19 years ago with my then fiancé. Yeah, sometimes I do commit. It rarely ends well. A combination of ADHD and asexuality means the shiny cake is literally more interesting than naked people, even very ticklish ones. Hmm. Back then, we went around Spain, Portugal and Morocco for two to three weeks. In those days, despite what the Wikipedia article on Interrail says, Interrail did cover Morocco. As an aside, we did a travel diary on that trip, which means I've been a travel blogger for longer than some people I know on Twitter have been alive, which, of course, makes me feel really old. Anyway, I had a chat with my lodger recently, and she agreed that the concept of Interrail perfectly suited my travel style. Overlanding adventures with no specific need to plan anything, and the ability to spend as little or as much time in any one place as you desire. And this time, obviously, I had far more time, and I was on my own, or at least I was on my own for most of the adventure. My ticket was valid for two months. I did do some travelling both before and after the ticket's validity, still in Europe, and for some of this I was travelling with one of my Twitter friends, uh, Lix. They are, as they currently quote on their Twitter profile, an interesting experience in many ways. That's a quote from me. The travels I had with them were very different to the ones I did on my own. They were much more expensive for a start because, oh my God, pampered princess with middle class tastes. It's nothing I haven't already told them. Don't worry, I'm not going to go on a subtweety rant about them. Uh, they were going to do a recording for a future pod for me while we were travelling, but we kind of never got round to it, possibly because they spent too much time sleeping or drinking. Yeah, it wasn't a sober adventure. 
Anyway, I do intend to write a full blog post about my interrail trip. Maybe even a podcast. Not quite decided yet. I mean, obviously the blog post would be written first. You know me well enough by now to never expect a podcast when I promise one. But it means I won't go into too much detail about it now. Suffice to say, I achieved a few of my goals. For example, watching an international football match between two countries who've nothing to play for. Liechtenstein drew 1-1 with Armenia. I also discovered the German-speaking countries have a fetish for overly elaborate and quite frankly bizarre fountains and that Leffe Brewery is Dutch, and I always thought it was Belgian. Shows you what I know about beer. Anyway, I came back to the UK on the 6th of December, and after a meet-up in Manchester with a few great people I know from Twitter, made my way slowly back home in time to vote in the general election. Which was a waste of effort, to be honest, but there we go. It reactivated a question I'd asked on the Ungagged podcast a year and a bit ago. With respect to those people who both feel and who are marginalised by the policies of government, and if it's assumed that their marginalisation continues and increases rather than reduces as an effect both of government policy directly and through this policy's effect on society as a whole, for someone like me who, yeah, my mother reads the Daily Express, I always thought she read the Daily Mail, but she told me off when I said that to her. Tomato, tomato. I grew up a Tory, I've mentioned that before, and I can't disguise the fact that I'm white, cis male, middle class and can pass for heterosexual. Anyway, what I was wondering at the time for that podcast was, if the country goes to hell, am I morally obliged to stay and fight for those who can't, for those who don't have a voice, or am I best off escaping while the opportunity is still available to somewhere that even I feel much safer? Given that I have a voice, I have skills, but even I'm just small fry, and if people like Harry Styles are ignored, my lodger doesn't think even someone like me can make any difference because I'm not establishment enough, and also my skills aren't... They're not personable. They're more conceptual. I can produce directed political content from anywhere. I can't physically aid people if I'm not in the country. But I'm not sure if I have those skills anyway, and would I just feel awkward about doing it? I'm also not a fundraiser. I can barely sell myself, as you probably know. One of my close friends said, the resistance needs data analysts in the logistics and analytics, you know, like getting resources like food and even people to places and working out how well a particular strategy has gone are important to any organisation, regardless of remit. And I pretty much have to be in the country to do that. But I don't think we're at that stage yet. My lodger doesn't think we ever will be, whereas my friends think we're actually pretty close. I still have this idea in my head to go away and study a language abroad, which I've mentioned in previous pods. One of the considerations I now have on that score is maybe I should be learning a language that would be useful in the fight to give marginalised people a voice, something like Urdu or Bengali. I definitely have to have a push for those sorts of languages, though. I find it hard enough to motivate commit off my own back for learning Spanish, and Spanish is supposed to be one of the easiest languages for English speakers to speak. Mind you, I have been quite productive these past few days. Not long after coming back home, I knocked up a to-do spreadsheet. Wow. Not quite a list, as it's a bit more conceptual than that. It has aspirational ideas on it that I want to be thinking about, even if not necessarily doing. So, for example, one of them, bizarrely, is learn stand-up comedy. I've no desire to be a comedian, but certainly... And even when writing previous podcast episodes, I do feel like I can sometimes make people laugh. And the sheer hell of putting yourself on stage in order to do that would possibly do wonders for my self-confidence. Also, there's not enough directly asexual comedy. While the whole world of both travel itself and the blogging influences in particular is just ripe to be ripped apart with observational humour. Not jokes, but humorous stories and situational comedy. Maybe there needs to be a sitcom set in a backpacker hostel. Why has no one ever done that? Obviously, it'd be a Netflix production rather than a BBC thing. Editor's note. Since writing this, I've been informed by my friend V that there has actually been a sitcom set in a backpack hostel. It's called Backpackers. 
But she also said, the reason why I've never heard of it is because, and I quote, unutterably shite, unquote. But, as an aside, I've mentioned before about my feelings about my house and how it doesn't feel like home anymore. It's one of the reasons I feel a little unsure about my future direction. Even while I was on my interrail trip, I was having discussions with my friends about staying. Many of them suggested I probably needed a bit of rest time, maybe six to nine months. I could settle a bit, do some personal development, finally work out how to make money from my apparent myriad of skills. And having that base makes it a whole lot easier rather than not spending more than four days in any one town. And of course, staying at home for a bit would be cheaper too. But my base irks me. I don't feel I can properly relax. I don't feel I can enjoy being there. And I certainly can't invite friends back. Not that I ever did, obviously. But it'd be nice if the principle worked. I have the same feelings in my room as I would do if I were in an Airbnb, which is a very odd state of a first to be in. With hindsight, of course, I probably should have sold my house as soon as I was made redundant. But there we are. Anyway, border crossings. Which is what this pod's about. Obviously, on my interrail journey, I passed through quite a few, although... As all but two of them I visited were in the Schengen zone, I directly or by default, Andorra being the oldest one, as though it's not in the EU either, other similar countries like Monaco and San Marino opt into various legislation so act as if they are. Andorra, despite being only accessible from two EU states, doesn't even seem to be opted into the telecommunications protocols, so it cost me money to access the internet on my mobile phone. None of the borders I passed were particularly noteworthy. The only border with any kind of admin was the one between Hungary and Romania, because Romania is not in the Schengen zone. This doesn't include, by the way, the passport checks between Denmark and Sweden, but not, interestingly, between Sweden and Denmark. It's something to do with Sweden tracking migrants. Or maybe it's a test for sobriety. Swedish alcohol laws and pricings are such that many of them flee to Denmark when they need a drink, or ten. Not that Denmark is much cheaper, but it's much easier to get a hold of. Uh, The Schengen Zone, by the way, in case you're not aware, is the open borders area that covers much of Europe, whereby member states do not have border controls or even passport checks at their border. Note that some states, like Switzerland, aren't members of the EU, but are members of Schengen. So in theory, there are still customs checks at the Swiss borders, but in practice, eh. This gives rise to the quirky feeling of only knowing if you're in a different country when you pass a signpost, a line painted on the ground, or in some cases, when you pass through a railway station and the language on the platform has changed signage. This is a very different world to the one I grew up in. Indeed, one of the borders I walked across was once part of the Iron Curtain. The border between Italy and Slovenia, Gorizia Novogorica, is now identified with a couple of signposts, the ruins of the old guard office, and a small display commemorating and celebrating the opening of the border. As an aside, the border used to pass through Transalpina Square, and literally the other side of the square is Novogorica railway station, best accessible from the square. Presumably, this makes it the closest railway station to the Iron Curtain, and must have been really weird to have walked into and out of in the Cold War. Laura, from Tumbleweed Chronicles, noticed the same thing when she travelled in Schengen. The first time I truly understood how amazing the Schengen zone is was when I drove from Venice to Innsbruck, and only realized that we were in Austria when the road signs were suddenly in German. Although I didn't visit on this trip, I've already mentioned in a previous podcast about the wonderful town of Baal-Hertog, Baal-Nassau, that pretty much defines the Dutch-Belgian border. If you remember, a treaty between two local lords in early medieval times led to the odd situation of enclaves within enclaves, of borders passing through buildings, and a huge sigh of relief when Schengen came in with the knowledge that it all didn't matter anymore. As a side note, what this does mean, of course, the whole Schengen thing, is that people no longer get passport stamps. This is important to Stephen Erickson from Stephen on the Move, who, as a geographer, was disappointed when he travelled through Central Europe. I was a little disappointed when I visited Central Europe this summer, and I didn't get to have a stamp in my passport as I crossed from Hungary 
ultimately into Poland or when I cross from Poland into the Czech Republic and into Slovakia eventually, etc. As a geographer and as somebody who's traveled since I was a young kid, I love being able to have that stamp in my passport to verify that, yes, I actually traveled into that particular country. Uh, With the Schengen Agreement opening borders within the European Union and other agreed-upon states, it's kind of disappointing as a traveler not to be able to get that passport stamp. Although there's certainly the benefits of the train not having to stop for an extended period of time because you're crossing an international border and the train engine needed to be changed and everybody needed to be woken up during an overnight train ride. Conversely, talking about passport stamps, Laura again points out that she has more than enough, weirdly, by crossing an international border that theoretically doesn't even exist. I'll come on to that side of things more later, but in the meantime, here's her views. I just left China, where I was living for the last year. Right across from the border from where I was living is Hong Kong. And now the two cities are only 20 miles apart. And technically, Hong Kong is a Chinese city, yet I had to pass through two separate passport controls in each direction. So whenever I did a simple day trip, I ended up having four new passport stamps in 10 hours. I've always liked border crossings. Well, I was always fascinated with borders anyway. I'm sure I've mentioned this before. I grew up devouring maps, especially local ones, A to Z's, Ordnance Surveys, etc. And I was fascinated by the trail of the boundaries, often a red crossed line, that separated out each local authority, each county. What exciting things lay on the other side in those blank spaces before the pages end? What must it be like living right on the edge? I mean, obviously the differences between the authorities of Liverpool, Knowsley and West Lancashire in North West England are quite small. But nevertheless, in my head, I figured it must be cool to be able to look out over somewhere completely different. It may be keen to go to these places to see the borders and see if I could actually notice any marked difference. It may surprise you to know that sometimes there is. As local authorities are responsible for the roads in the UK, it's sometimes quite clear where one authority have recently repaired the road and the other one hasn't. Or, for example, like the border between Dudley and Sandwell in the West Midlands runs right through the middle of a dual carriageway for a mile or so, and it's been known in the past for one authority to grip their side of the road in the winter, and the other one not to. Here's Stephen Erickson again, pointing out that the same thing happens in the USA, where interstates are the responsibility of the states rather than central government. I always find it interesting to cross borders, especially inside the United States. For example, it's the state of Alabama's responsibility to pave and maintain Interstate 20 as it goes east-west through the state. So oftentimes for me, when I lived in Alabama and I would travel to Georgia and specifically to the Atlanta area to visit family and friends, and I would cross over from Alabama into Georgia, the pavement would change, and of course vice versa, uh, because the state of Alabama wasn't necessarily coordinating with the state of Georgia about Uh, how the pavement should be made, what the material was being utilized, etc. So that's always kind of an interesting thing that I've noticed growing up and traveling in the United States. Obviously, this interest extended to the macro scale. I was always fascinated with the outline of countries, working out why they are the shape they are. And I guess from there, everything else just developed. Areas like Baal Hertog particularly appealed because there's a lot of borders, and on first glance, it seems to make no sense whatsoever. On third glance, it makes no sense whatsoever. I also developed an interest in disputed borders in areas claimed by more than one country, and by inference, areas claimed by none, though I've no plans to visit Bertawil, an area desert not claimed by either Egypt or Sudan, because I imagine it's a really expensive and difficult place to get to without much reward other than the knowledge of being there. And of course, micronations and self-proclaimed states, I also find really, really interesting. It's these sort of places that really stretch the definition of border, but I'll come on to all of that later. 
Someone else who finds borders fascinating is Amanda Kendall from notaballerina.com, but for a wholly different reason. So I grew up in Australia, and obviously Australia has, well, of course we have an international border, but we don't have an international border you can cross. We're a big island. Um, Even driving to get to a state border is something that someone from Perth, Western Australia like me, um, doesn't do very often, but it takes two days to get to the state border. So international borders I just find utterly fascinating because it's not something that part of my regular experience. And I guess my favorite experience with international borders is when I was living in Bratislava and I was living in an apartment in the ninth floor. And so from my balcony in my apartment in Bratislava, I was in Slovakia. I could see bits of Slovakia and I could see to the border between Slovakia and Austria and Hungary. And that was Utterly incredible for me to be able to think that I could look out and actually see three different countries at once. Uh, that really blew me away when it came to thinking about international borders. In my adventures around the world, I've crossed quite a few international borders by land. Most of them, even the ones where I physically had to do something, have been reasonably easy and quite memorable, but some of them have been a little more notable. At the time of recording, I'm currently publishing blog posts about my adventures in West Africa a few years back, and one of those posts was specifically about the four border crossings I had on my adventure. Surf on over there for a more detailed description, but in a nutshell, one of them I had to wait for a couple of hours in the oppressive middle-day heat while everyone else was inoculated against yellow fever. One of them I got stuck out with no luggage or even shoes because the share taxi that was taking me to Togo couldn't be mithered to wait for me to stamp through the border and one of them I couldn't even find the border because I followed the locals who just ignored it completely. In general, it was also interesting to see the way when the locals did cross the border at the official crossings, just how casual it was for them. Just slip the guard a bit of cash, save the admin on both ends. As an aside, yes, I've crossed many an international border barefoot. No one's ever noticed or occurred, but generally I've had sandals at least in my luggage. Laura, again, had a similar experience in West Africa of a casual border that didn't really seem to exist. When I lived in Senegal, I decided one week to visit the Gambia, because why not? And I just biked across the border. It's the sub-Saharan bush. It's not like it's a policed border. I just kept asking villages if we were in Senegal or the Gambia, until somebody finally said the Gambia. I had two very different experiences in Central Asia. I think I've already mentioned in a previous pod about the border guard coming into Uzbekistan from Kyrgyzstan, who may have been bored as there was basically nobody else there, insisted on browsing my tablet computer to see if I had any porn on it. He didn't tell me that's what he was looking for at first, so for 20 minutes I was basically showing him my holiday snaps. When he finally told me that's what he wanted, I said, all I've got is the stuff I've made myself, don't ask, whereupon he said, that doesn't count, everyone does that, and sent me on my way. Conversely, crossing between Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, the border was absolutely jam-packed with people everywhere. There were a couple of other Westerners on the minibus I was on, but this time, rather than being delayed, we were pretty much waved through with nary a glance. Nobody checked our luggage or computers that time. We were told later that that border is a prime smuggling point and they check the locals incredibly thoroughly. But as foreigners, they don't see us as a problem. Of course, it meant we still had to wait ages for the rest of the passengers from the bus to mill through, but hey-ho. I've never been turned back at a border or refused entry, though I've had a few times when I've been worried about it on my way there. This usually happens to be entering the USA from Canada. As a side note, due to my lack of desire for admin, I've not flown into the USA since 2009, I think, so I've never filled in an ESTA. Because you don't need to overland, you just fill in a small form when you get there. They stick a green piece of card in your passport. It's uh, an I-94, which is supposed to be collected by security when you leave, though no one at airports cares, so I end up ripping it out myself. 
The thing is, sometimes the border guards at the overland point are fairly friendly, like at the Peace Arch between Vancouver and Seattle. Sometimes they're efficient, La Col Champlain, just south of Montreal, and sometimes, specifically the Windsor-Detroit crossing, which I've experienced twice now, they're completely full of themselves and snide. It takes a great deal of effort for me not to shout at them and tell them to stick their I-94 up their back interstate. That would not go down well, though several friends would not be surprised if I did. One of my first experiences of border crossings was on a trip over Christmas 1996 with that same fiancé referred to earlier. We'd spent a few days in Zakopane in Poland on a coach trip. We were the youngest on that trip by about 20 years. This was before Schengen and the Euro, and in those days the Polish Zloty was a non-convertible currency, so we had a pile to use up before we left. It was sometime in the middle of the night, it was maybe minus 20 degrees, and for some reason we broke down at the border into Germany. We'd heard it was because some of the diesel had frozen in the fuel tanks. The only place at the border open at that time of night to spend money was a shop that seemed to only sell Polish vodka. It was about another 30 hours back to the UK, but we don't really remember much about that. Anyway, I asked a couple of other people to give me their experiences of international borders. Firstly, Kerry, from Kerry Somewhere, an American, talks about crossing from the USA to Mexico and back again. I decided to cross the border from the US to Mexico because, you know, there's so much sensationalism around the border and how dangerous it is. And, you know, there's so much talk about the gangs and the violence. And so I traveled solo, drove across the border. I chose one of the safer border crossings, um, of course, because I'm not that reckless considering, you know, the media <laughs> mentions that the borders are so unsafe. But I'll be honest with you, I felt very safe as a solo female traveler driving across that border. And it was a quick drive across. It didn't take very long at all. Some border crossings going into Mexico and especially coming back into the U.S. could take hours. But it took me about 15 minutes to go across. I waited in a queue of cars to get through. And the Mexican immigration just waved me through. They didn't even ask me for my passport, which was crazy. And then, of course, coming back into the U.S., it's not that way at all. Coming back into the U.S., they asked me multiple questions, such as, where am I going? Uh, where was I? Where am I coming from? Why am I alone? <laughs> and then they also asked me to roll down my windows, and there was a, a dog that sniffs around in the car, obviously checking for drugs and to check to make sure that there's not any people hiding in the car, especially in you know the trunk of the car. But like I said, the reason why I did this is because I wanted to really understand what it's like at the border and how dangerous or not dangerous is it, you know. Weirdly, Nat from Nat Packer Travel crossed the same border and reports quite a different experience. My most memorable border crossing was from Tijuana in Mexico over to San Diego in the USA. Now, I assume going from Mexico to USA was going to be such a pain of a border crossing. I thought the security was going to be immense. But no, there was nothing at all. It was just one big queue for hours and hours and hours. To be fair, there was two queuing systems, but I had no idea which one to get in. There was no one around to help. There was nothing. So being English, I just naturally got in the biggest queue and queued for what felt like a day, if I'm honest. It wasn't, but I might as well have been. We finally get to like the security checks and no one scans the bags. There's no sniffer dogs. There's nothing. I did overhear the guards complaining about all the Mexicans pushing and shoving. And, you know, I just thought, well, maybe if you have an actual system, people wouldn't be getting frustrated with this massive queue where no one knows what's going on. 
And then we got onto American soil. We're free, we can go, but we had to get our green card. You have to go back in the building through another door to a small office to get your green card. So in all honesty, there's nothing stopping you from just getting out into that American soil and not going for your green card. You just run into the shopping centre that literally shares a car park with the border crossing. It's just insane when you think how strict, well, I assumed, Mexico to USA would be, because, well, you know, who are in the news and all that? But it was so ridiculously laid back and no security. Not what I expected at all. Swapping continents, Alexi from Travel Lex talks a bit about his liking for borders and of the slightly dubious experience he'd had in Southeast Asia. I really enjoy uh, crossing borders. There's something a little bit romantic and exciting about uh, crossing into a different country, whether it's by land or uh, by sea. Um, I do think it's a little bit more exciting to literally sort of walk across this sort of imaginary uh, line and uh, walk into a completely new country. One that sticks in my mind uh, particularly is crossing over from Thailand into Cambodia. I remember being taken by minivan to a little town about 20 minutes away from the border and being taken into this little room where the local authorities demanded a payment of roughly 20 US dollars to get us across the border. I mean, we knew, of course, that that wasn't the price for the crossing, but they said, well, no, that's that's what it is. So, of course, um, that was an interesting experience where we kind of sat in this little room and they did all the paperwork or pretended to do all the paperwork before taking us to the border where of course uh, we didn't have to pay anything but we were already 20 sort of dollars short but I feel that it's all part of the experience really and um, it does make for some good stories and in a way uh, when I travel in Europe for example and you're crossing the border you don't even know half of the time that you are sort of crossing into a new country and I think that it's not as fun almost to do it because you're not getting that sort of uh, passport stamp especially for somebody who uh, doesn't live in the EU. Laura talks about her issues at an even more contentious border, which is amongst the closest she's ever had to being denied entry to a country. I've only had issues with border crossings in two countries. And to hear the story of the second country, listen to the next installment of Travel Tales Beyond the Brochure, which Ian is kindly mostly giving me the floor in order to have a much more nuanced conversation about this. But for now, I'll tell you what happened in the first country where I've had issues, which is Israel. Now, my initial arrival was fine. They don't stamp your passport there, assumingly because so many other countries don't let you in if you have an Israeli stamp, so I was just given a paper visa. I was visiting an Israeli friend at the time, and we decided to do a day trip to Petra. And this is an easy day trip over land out of the uh, southern city of Alot. So we went over to Alot, and we took a day trip over to Petra and came back that evening. Cheeky plug, I do have a blog about this experience over at tumbleweedchronicles.com, so go check it out. Um, But yeah, we did this tour. And my friend was the only Israeli in our van. However, the day before we went to Petra, we went swimming in the Dead Sea. And my friend, ever intelligent as he is, had forgotten to take his passport out of his pocket. Thus, (laughs) this document had become a bit warped. So coming back from Jordan, we entered the passport queue in two different lines. He was in the Israeli nationals line and I was in the foreigners line. And we were stopped separately. Now, everyone else in our tour was immediately let through, but for some reason they started asking me a few questions about why I had gone into Jordan, which to this day baffles me because it was obvious that I was on the same tour as everybody else that they had just let through, but whatever. Meanwhile, my friend's passport looked so ridiculous, so even though he was Israeli, they were questioning him. 
And when they realized that we knew each other, ooh, boy. So they did the old answer these questions at the same time trick. Did those a few times, actually. Lots of quick answers. Lots of kind of weird questions. And then they finally disappeared into a room for about five minutes before coming back out, handing us our passports, and wishing us a pleasant evening. Okay. To be fair, I had a similar conversation when leaving Israel at the Jordan River Sheikh Hussein crossing when the Israeli border guards commented on the worn and slightly damp nature of my passport. It's nine years old and the UK's a wet country wasn't an answer that went down well. Also, on the way back at the same border law across, apart from having to take everything out of my luggage, which to be fair wasn't a major problem as I was travelling with only my firm's laptop bag, the lady I was travelling with, we met and shared a trip around Wadi Rum, was delayed and questioned because at the time Israel had a real suspicion of young solo female backpackers. There'd apparently been a couple of Palestinian suicide bombers who'd taken on that guise. Okay, I'm nearly out of time, so just to let you know, this topic will be continued next time. So Come back for the next installment of this podcast when we can have a bit more of a mm, not-so-cheery version of what borders can mean. Until then, Happy New Year, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Asheville studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com If you want to contact me I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com Until next time, have a safe journey. Bye for now. <laughs>